Hello and welcome everybody. It's amazing to see so many people. Um, <laughs> and so we're going to get right into it. So let me start by introducing myself and the event and then I will introduce our guest for today. My name is Nima Paidapati. I am an anthropologist and historian, and I am currently the LSE Fellow in Inequalities in the Sociology Department. And today's event, which is um, hosted by the International Inequalities Institute and the Department of Sociology, um, is a chance for us to explore the new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rucker Bredman. This is the part of the event where I say, for all those who have joined us, our author hardly needs an introduction, but I'm going to go ahead and introduce him nonetheless. So Rucker is a Dutch historian, and he is the best-selling author of the 2016 book, Utopia for Realists, How We Can Build an Ideal World. His TED Talk, Poverty Isn't a Lack of Character, It's a Lack of Cash, was selected as one of the top 10 TED Talks of 2017. And his latest book, which he's joining us to discuss today. Humankind, A Hopeful History was just released two months ago. Is that right? Yes, indeed. So very, very recently. Um, so first of all, everybody join me in welcoming Rutger, welcoming all of you. Um, we are going to have about a 30-minute discussion. Um, you can feel free in the meantime to put your questions either into the Q&A um, on Zoom or on Facebook, and we will leave about half an hour at the end to get to um, as many questions as we are able to. So the new book, Humankind, argues, well, I will actually, um, give me just one moment. I'm going to try and read from the book itself, but it says um, in the book that you make a very simple argument, which is that by nature, as children, when crisis hits, when war breaks out, humans have a powerful preference for our good side. There has been a pervasive myth that humans are, in fact, by their very natures, competitive, um, destructive, and highly selfish. And so this book is a very readable, um, lovely attempt to push against all of those myths. So... I want to try and get into where those myths come from and what it means. What's the significance of trying to argue otherwise? But I will start, um, understandably, by taking a look at exactly where your book begins. Your book mm -hmm. begins with um, descriptions of Blitzkrieg, of Katrina in the U.S., mm -hmm. of these moments of crisis. And we have been told through science fiction, through philosophy, that when a crisis hits, people revert to their most selfish natures. They will look out for themselves first and think of others only later. And your argument is, in fact, that that is not actually what mostly happens. But in a moment of crisis, people really lend each other a helping hand. Um, obviously, the book was written before you know, the onset mm -hmm. of the global pandemic. What do you see? From yeah. your, what have you been seeing and observing um, in the last couple of months? And do you think that this is bearing out the thesis of your book? Well, the old theory that's so influential in Western culture is indeed the notion that civilization is only a thin veneer. And that when something like this happens, a pandemic, you know, COVID hits, is that we all start looting and plundering and become very selfish and cooperation breaks down and we reveal who or what we really are, savages, beasts, animals. And indeed, this is I, this idea, you, you find it everywhere in Western culture. It goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks or you find it in Orthodox Christianity, the notion that we're all sinners. Uh, I think with many Enlightenment philosophers, you can find the same notion um, with the founding fathers of the United States. And even if you look at the modern capitalist system, I think the central dogma has been for a very long time is that people are just selfish and that we have to deal with it or that maybe it's even a good thing. Uh, like the greed is good mantra. And in, uh, what I argue, at least in the first chapters of the, of the book, is that veneer theory is really wrong. Is that actually pretty much the opposite happens. So I, uh, I first look at what happens after natural disasters. 
because we've got a lot of evidence uh, about, about that. There have now been more than 700 case studies of, say, floodings or earthquakes or a tsunami or something like that. And sociologists have studied what happens. Now, that's pretty much the opposite of what you always see in the news. I mean, we know what the news reports after uh, a disaster, especially I think Katrina, as you mentioned, is a, is a, is a good example. 2005, New Orleans was flooded and the press was full with stories of looting, plundering, you know, people killing each other, uh, you know, the terrible things that were happening in the Superdome at that moment. Lots of horrible rumors that really give you this impression that civilization was breaking down. It was only later that real researchers, instead of journalists that were just, uh, you know, reporting on rumors, uh, but real researchers find out that actually pretty much the opposite happened, an explosion of cooperation and altruism, people from the left to the right, rich, poor, young, old, working together and uh, doing their best to save as many lives as possible. Um, and so, yeah, when this, this crisis started, I was, I was really wondering, is a pandemic similar to a natural disaster? Um, there are obvious differences, of, of course. I mean, you can't really see a virus. I mean, you can see the effects of it, but it's not... As, as clear or striking as, a, as an earthquake or something like that. Um, but then I think we can say by now that actually there are striking similarities. If you zoom out a little bit, then yes, you can find instances of people behaving in a little bit of a nasty way, hoarding toilet paper or something like that. Um, and we can count on the press to really focus on that uh, day after day. Uh, this was especially in the first weeks. But I think we, now, we can say now that actually most of the behavior has been cooperative and pro-social in nature. And then indeed, it's pretty astonishing that billions of people around the globe very quickly, quite radically changed their lifestyles to stop the virus from spreading further. That is the real headline to me. Okay. Um, so part of your um, book deals then with why it is that we spend so much time um, thinking about these, this more negative portrayal. What, what explains mm -hmm. the popularity of this negative portrayal? Um, why is it so pervasive? Why do we come back to it? Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's indeed something seductive about it. Um, yeah. As you told us just in your examples, the, the news likes to sell us this image that we yeah. are in fact deeply divided, that it is very hard to get along. What explains that? You know, it's a great question. And I think... <laughs> I have a very long answer because I think there, there are actually four important reasons. So the first reason is indeed the kind of information that we get every day, which is mostly the news, right? We know our friends, we know our coworkers, we know our family members, and we generally like them and trust them. But, but then when we want to know what other people are like, those other people far away, we mainly have to rely on the news, right? And 90% of all people in developed countries follow the news on a daily basis. And the news is not a neutral product. Even when you have so-called objective reporters doing their job, you know, they still focus mostly on the negative stuff, on things that go wrong, on corruption, on crises, on terrorism, on violence, you name it. And psychologists have long known that the news in this way is actually a mental health hazard. And there's a term for this. Uh, they call it mean world syndrome, that people who follow the news too much they become more cynical, they become more pessimistic, and they have this misguided view of human nature and the, the state of our society. Now, obviously, I think that the news is, is a bit of a superficial explanation here because, well, this darker view of human nature was already there way before the mother news industry existed. So I think we have to dig a di little deeper. So the second reason would be really to look at, uh, or, or th important thing to, would be to look at Western culture, where, where this, this notion of veneer theory is so deeply embedded. But then the question is, why? Why does it come back again and again? And then we come with the third reason, which is that um, it's often in the interest of those in power. They want you to be cynical. They want you to think that most people can't be trusted and that they're just selfish. Because if we can actually trust each other, then we don't need them then we can build a much more genuinely democratic and egalitarian society. So I think that's important to keep in mind that uh, cynicism is often a tool of those in power and it's used to justify a very hierarchical and unequal society. But then finally, the fourth reason, I think why we fall for this all the time, um, it's a little bit in our own nature as well. Psychologists call this the negativity bias. Um, you know, I experienced that as a, as a writer, as a journalist, maybe you as an academic, is that 
say you, you write something and you get 10 compliments or 50 or 100 and well, that's nice. But then you get one piece of criticism and that's what keeps you up at night, right? That's, that's really what makes a bigger impression. Evil is just stronger than good. It simply is. We have this negativity bias. We focus more on the negative. And there's probably some evolutionary reason for that. Probably, you know, during the Stone Age, that helped us to survive. But now in this world where we're being bombarded with bad stuff happening every day and where the news seems to be asking the question, uh, you know, journalists get up uh, with the question, what is the worst thing that happened in the world today? Because that's supposedly the most important thing for us to know then yeah, this sort of negativity bias has become a quite dangerous thing that we need to be wary of. So yeah, that's my my answer. Sorry, it's a bit of a long answer. <laughs> and there's a lot of really interesting things to unpack there. And so I hope we come back to um, a lot of that, both in our conversation and in the Q&A to follow. Um, but I want to kind of uh, stick with this moment a little mm-hmm. bit to think about, because in many ways, um, and this is not exactly new, but it has been really illuminating. Crises both show us things that have always been there that we have never mm-hmm. paid attention to. And they also subvert or overthrow ways of doing things that we've always done, that we've taken for granted, we thought we could never shift. And so I think this is a really in- instructive kind of moment to think about and to think you know, um, alongside your book with. And so I agree that this is a moment where you can see a lot of different kinds of behaviors as you can in any mm-hmm. crisis, um, selfish ones as well as altruistic ones. But it has actually been, for me, a moment where I've seen a great deal of social solidarity. Mm-hmm. And you see it when, in this very strange way, where you know many of us feel very isolated, we are at home, we're you know, maybe with our families, but we don't see many, many of the people that we used to have face-to-face contact with. Mm-hmm. And yet we are doing this not just for our own sake, but very explicitly we are doing it for other people, for mm. our friends and neighbors and family who we want to protect, um, our colleagues in um, at the LSE, we're doing it for our students and mm-hmm. for our community, both now and you know, um, in the year ahead. And so there's this real sense that we are really in this together. Yeah. Nevertheless, I wonder whether we shouldn't just be talking about human nature. Are we, you know, are we selfish or are we altruistic? Mm-hmm. But what are the social conditions that allow us uh, to be one way or the other? And what I mean mm-hmm. by this is that, so I'm an American, and when I, even though I'm sitting here in the UK, when I see things in the US, I see not people being incredibly selfish, but a kind of politics that's incredibly divisive. Mm-hmm. So that something like wearing a mask has become a symbol Mm-hmm. for one side of the political divide or the other. Mm-hmm. When people refuse to wear masks, sometimes the rhetoric looks like, I'm not going to have my own freedom impinged upon. It looks like a selfish reason. But mm-hmm. often, actually, it is a social reason. It says yeah. that I belong to a certain group or to exactly. a certain kind of politics or to a certain viewpoint, and I will not be co-opted into a different viewpoint. And so in this moment, thinking alongside of your argument and your book, can you help us think about the social behaviors that either bring us together or divide us? Yeah, I think you made a brilliant point there. Is that indeed the not wearing of masks? It's more like you should look at it in the and think of group identity and that they just want to show they're part of a of a different group. And it's about comradeship and solidarity and cooperation, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And that is that is disturbing at the same time. So. In my book, I argue that on the one hand, we human beings, we've evolved to be friendly. There's strong evidence now from evolutionary anthropology and from biology that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us, the most pro-social among us who had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. The scientific term for this is self-domestication. I think we all know what domestication is, right? You've got goats, you've got sheep, and you've got cows who've been domesticated by us. We select it for tameness. And then, uh, yeah, well, uh, let's say you start with a wolf and you end up with a chihuahua. That's what domestication is. Now, we know what the result of that is, of domesticating a species. Uh, There's a long list of traits. So they become... Uh, but they, they just look more friendly. They have thinner bones. They've got so, smaller brains. And on average, domesticated species are just a bit more childish. It seems like they never really grow up anymore. They're, they're puppified, I, I'd like to say. And then you look at us, at human beings, and it seems that we've always also been domesticated. Um, 
I've got my own term for this. I, I call us homo puppy, which is, uh, I hope that I'll be remembered by science for that. Probably not, but maybe. Um, and, and so we're a little bit like domesticated apes, baby chimpanzees. Um, and that is actually our true superpower. It has helped us to cooperate on, on a scale that no other species has been able to do um, in, in, the, in, in history. Um, but it's important to remember here that there's a real dark side to this friendliness. Um, there's a, also this capacity that we have for groupish behavior or tribal behavior, as they, as they often call it. Um, and um, that, is, that is sort of the dark side of this is that we often do the most horrible things in the name of friendship, in the name of comradeship, in the name of loyalty. And if you look at the real heroes in our history, they're actually often quite unfriendly. They're quite nasty and difficult and they're willing to go against the status quo. We often forget about this. So think about someone like Martin Luther King, who's now been sanitized and we have the Martin Luther King Day in the US and say, oh, he's, we all love him. He's a hero. Well, actually, in the 1960s, he was a very polarizing figure and many white Americans absolutely hated him. Um, we've, yeah, we, they basically chose to forgot about that. But this is important to keep in mind is that friend, being a friendly human being is not necessarily the same as being a good person. Sometimes circumstances actually call for unfriendliness and for nastiness and for being a difficult and being a pain in the ass. I was going to say that, uh, so um, I'm one of the core instructors for the LSE MSE in inequalities. And mm -hmm. so for my class last year, you were uh, quite a hero for being the person <laughs> at Davos who was the only person talking about taxation rather than philanthropy. Mm. Sometimes you have to be the person in the room who is willing to say the thing that everybody needs to hear. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that seemed more heroic afterwards than it really was in a moment because <laughs> I was just annoyed with the conference and no one was watching the live stream. So it was like, you know what, whatever. But if I would have known that so many people would have watched it, I probably wouldn't have dared to do it. <laughs> but indeed, right? It's easy to be the person who is friendly to everybody. It is sometimes yeah. necessary to be the one who um, you know, asks hard truths. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so to get to that, right? Uh, you say in your book, and you've said it in a few interviews now, and I really mm. want to draw you out on this, that to say that humanity is in fact, you know, that us by our very human natures are not these negative things that we've been portrayed to be mm -hmm. um, by nature, selfish and divisive. But th you have said that this is a radical argument. This is a subversive argument. This mm -hmm. is an argument that is a very importantly political argument because it then imagines a very different way of organizing our politics. Mm -hmm. That's what I'd like you to say um, more about. Mm -hmm. What is this, you know, what is radical or subversive about this? Mm. Well, what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. So our view of human nature tends to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, we've got evidence for this in economics. So for a long time, economists uh, taught their students that we human beings are homo economicus, that we're these um, selfish, rational agents that are maximizing our own gains. At least that's uh, how they portrayed us in their, their models. And so what's interesting is that actually an American economist, Robert Frank, discovered that as students progressed in their studies, you know, they went from the first year to the second year and then to the third year, they started behaving more like homo economicus. They, they started, they became what they were taught. So ideas are never merely ideas. Stories are never stories. They tend to become true if we, if we believe in them. Um, so this is why I think it's important to update our view of human nature to a more realistic one, because then we can uh, design our institutions around them. Obviously, humans are in many ways produced by their institutions, by the schools they go to or the workplaces or how we do democracy or even our prisons. And um, in the past couple of decades, I think you could argue that we've so often designed these institutions around the notion of selfishness, that you have to basically yeah, almost force kids to learn anything that you need a hierarchical school with a curriculum and teachers who say, well, you need to do this, you need to do that, that they ha don't have their own intrinsic curiosity. Many organizations are like that as well, where you have these layers of hierarchy uh, and of management, uh, where again, the notion is that there's no intrinsic motivation that people need to be told what to do. Um, and uh, I think uh, that sort of 
creates the kind of people that we don't really want, actually. I think we can move in a very different direction. And so in the book, I, I talk a lot about a lot of case studies of people and organizations and schools that are already trying to do this, who have moved to a different view of human nature and are trying to create the kind of people that their theory presupposes. Um, but in the idea that this is subversive and radical, there is also, I think, uh, the argument, it comes out in certain parts of the book, that mm -hmm. it serves the purpose of elites mm -hmm. to, for us to believe that, in fact, we can only be governed through hierarchy. And I'm wondering yeah. if I could draw you out on Yeah, sure. On that yeah, argument. yeah. I think this is the classic argument that was uh, described by a philosopher like Thomas Hobbes. You know, his book Leviathan in the 70th century um, made the argument that back in the state of nature, as they, they called it back then, when we were still nomadic and togetherers living in the Stone Age, we lived these lives that were nasty, brutish and short, and were engaging in a war of all against all. But then, luckily, at some point, we made the decision to give up our liberty and we got security in return by appointing a Leviathan, an all-powerful ruler. Um, this is, I think... Uh, the argument that's still made today when in the US politicians talk about law and order or, you know, that we need um, police and the army to protect and serve because otherwise, you know, we would all kill each other or something like that. That is, that is basically the argument. So I think that often those at the top who have been, I think, often corrupted by power, this is sort of this, the short summary of my book would be most people are pretty decent but power corrupts. Now, those at the top, they want you to be wary of other people. They want you to watch as much CNN and Fox News as possible because then you'll be afraid. And it's just easier to rule people who are afraid. And it's very difficult to rule people who believe in their fellow citizens because they tend to work together, they tend to cooperate, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not, they're not quick in being submissive to some kind of ruler or something like that. So, yes, I, I, I really think that cynicism uh, is, is a gift to those in power. And believing in the good of humanity is an act of defiance. Okay. Um, and certainly we're seeing some of that same debate being played out in the U.S. where the um, abolish the police, defund the police um, mm -hmm. type movements are trying to imagine different ways of cooperatively solving um, problems within communities or reallocating resources to other forms of problem-solving techniques rather than policing. And yeah. you know, much debate about whether that is desirable, possible. Um, but again, this is a moment uh, that is opening up some of those avenues that perhaps had not been on the table, um, yeah. or at least not been on the table as publicly as they are currently. So this yeah, is yeah, 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 yeah. And we've got great examples of different ways of policing in other pla uh, places in the around the globe, actually. So in my book, I devote one chapter to the criminal justice system of Norway, which is pretty much the opposite of of the American system, where, for example, you have prisons where the prisoners have the freedom to socialize with the guards. Guards often don't even wear uniforms. Prisoners can make music together. They've got their own music studio. They've got their own music label, which is called Criminal Records. And um, then you look at the results. Uh, you look at the scientific evidence behind it. And it turns out that actually they've got the lowest recidivism rate in the world, the lowest chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. Now, the U.S. is pretty much the opposite. They've got these traditional prisons, which are, I think, universities for crime. So they bring in people for small drug offenses and they turn them into into real criminals. Uh, and this is all being funded by the taxpayer. It's a pretty crazy system, if you ask me. And uh, the same is true for policing. So if, you, if people are protesting peacefully and you show up in riot gear, what do you expect? Right? It's it, sort of you get what you, get what you, what you, what you bring. And um, I think um, there are other ways of policing, uh, what they call community policing, and we've got a huge amount of evidence that that's way more effective. Actually, it was Eleanor Ostrom, the, uh, the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics uh, in 2009. Now, she became famous because she did brilliant research into the commons, you know, sort of the third way after the market and the state of people just working together in a democratic way. But not many people know that in the 70s, she was one of the first experts to lead a study into policing in the US. And she found that 
policing departments who are just smaller and you know work more on a local and human scale are consistently better deliver you know better at solving crimes uh, have a higher satisfaction from citizens etc cetera, etc cetera. so that we've known that for a very long time and uh, but, but I completely understand sort of the the slogan defund the police because it's become so bad in the US that maybe you just need to defund the whole thing and then start over again to, to pick up on that, and I see some of the questions that have now started to pop up in the mm-hmm. um, chat as well, that there's a lot of questions about cooperation. So mm-hmm. say that, you know, we are ready to uh, embrace this new idea of human nature, that we are not divisive and selfish, but we are by nature uh, caring and concerned about mm-hmm. our fellow citizens, that um, we are far more cooperative and kind. Nevertheless, how do we build societies that encourage this kind of cooperation? Um, so what I mean by that is that I might very much care about, you know, people who are near and dear to me, who are, you know, my family, who I want to protect, but how do we channel some of those uh, possibilities towards mm-hmm. much larger forms of cooperation for tackling things like the climate catastrophe or tackling mm-hmm. things like this current moment, which requires huge amounts of cooperation, not just within nations, but across them. Hmm. So a couple of things. In the first place, I didn't want to write a self-help book. Uh, there are a lot of self-help books out there, and I think most of you, most of them don't really, <laughs> don't really help. This is really about a, a, applying an idea on an institutional level. Um, and in, in the book, I just give a couple of examples of people who really inspire me, who I think are, you know, just great case studies of how you can redesign your organization with much less hierarchy, much less management, if you actually start trusting your employees. And then you can work on a, actually on a huge scale with, with only self-directed teams. Um, I also talk about how, how this would work in education, uh, which has pretty radical implications as well. I think you can just it's the idea of homework or of different classes uh, that you can mix all the ages, you can mix all the levels um, and you can give kids the freedom to follow their own curiosity and create their own learning path. Um, so that is, I think, really inspiring, but there are probably many, many more examples and, and I'm not an expert on, on all of those. The only thing that I do know is that once you change your view of human nature, well, pretty much everything changes. Um, so, uh, my job, I guess, as a writer is to d- tell different kinds of stories because we humans, we often are or we become the stories that we tell ourselves. Um, stories are never just stories. So one of, one of my personal favorite uh, stories in the book is about um, this real life Lord of the Flies uh, story where, I mean, we've all read, I think, or at least heard of Lord of the Flies where uh, yeah, you have this uh, these, these group of British boarding school kids who shipwreck on an island and quickly turn into savages. And at the end of the novel, three of them are dead. Uh, And uh, so I wondered whether it had ever really happened and found this case in 1966 where uh, six Tongan kids had shipwrecked on a, on an island in the, in the Pacific near uh, island is called Ata and they survived for 50 months and they're still the best of friends today. Now that's obviously not a sort of a scientific experiment, but I do think that if we still let millions of kids read Lord of the Flies around the globe, then they also deserve to know about that one time that real kids shipwrecked on a real island, uh, because that's a very different kind of story. Uh, and so my hope is that, yeah, telling different kind of stories can help us to, yeah, behave in a different way and create a different kind of society. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask one final question, and I think we'll then open it up to questions from our audience. So my final question, because this is being hosted by the Inequalities Institute, and a lot Mm -hmm. of our audience might have come to us um, because they were also interested in your earlier work as well. So I'm wondering if there's a connection or how you would tease out the connections between this work and your book, Utopia, which is to Mm -hmm. say that one, which is arguing for things like universal basic income. Mm -hmm. um, What are the kind of connections there? Hmm. So I think that Utopia for Realists is a very, what's the term in English? Like a wonky book, right? With a lot of research and statistics and numbers. Mm -hmm. And I try to convince people that something like a universal basic income is a good idea because we've got so much evidence that it actually works. We've got experiments going back all the way to the 1970s that show that if you just give people money, 
they tend to use it quite well. Actually, mm -hmm. poverty, as I like to say, is just a, a lack of cash. It's not a lack of character. Mm -hmm. um, now, I published the book and then uh, I had the privilege of talking about it with a lot of readers. And again and again, after 30 or 40 minutes, I found myself discussing human nature with people mm -hmm. because they were sort of interested in all these experiments. But then often the argument came up uh, like, oh, this is this is just uh, something that works on a local scale or maybe in Canada in the 1970s. But you can't really scale it up because human nature, people are just selfish. And then I started to realize that actually so many of the really exciting ideas that, be, that have been gaining traction in the, in the past couple of decades, I think, like universal basic income, but also the notion of deliberative democracy, participatory democracy, you know, moving to a genuine democracy where you don't have career politicians, but actually involve average citizens. Um, all these ideas rely on a different view of human nature. But then I realized that I actually didn't believe in that optimistic view of human nature because I, I mean, I had studied history and I knew about, you know, the depressing social psychology experiments of the 60s, the Stanford prison experiment, the Milgram experiment. I knew about, you know, what kind of horrible things were capable of is, uh, of. I used to believe in veneer theory. I didn't know that after a natural disaster, people mostly start co cooperating. So writing this book has been a reckoning with my own ideas, trying to reconcile my sort of my belief in something like universal basic income and trying to see whether um, I could actually find, make the argument that indeed um, it's, it's also in our nature for something like that to actually work. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you for showing us a little bit of the journey that has taken you from those concerns to this one, which, and I can see how this book then becomes a certain foundation for some of those other things you have advocated in your other work, including things like university. Yeah, yeah. I should have written them the other way around. I should have written <laughs> humankind first and then, yeah. Well, I, I think it's, you know, a way of saying, because I, I see this a lot, right? Uh, there's all these arguments in the universal basic income debates about if you just give people cash, what will mm -hmm. they spend it on, right? They will spend mm -hmm. it in ways that are, you know, deeply selfish. And so this is a way of saying, you know, it helps to have faith in people. It even mm -hmm. kind of helps to have faith in oneself yeah. because yeah. that then opens up the possibility of what we, uh, you know, of yeah. trusting oneself and, you know, one's. Yeah. Yeah. And one final thing here is that you should accept a little bit of collateral damage. This is true for your personal life, but also on a societal level is that, yes, there will always people who will you know, will will con the system who will commit fraud or something like that. That That's what happens. But it's collateral damage. You should accept it. So if you've never been conned in your life, you should see a therapist because your basic attitude to life is not trusting enough. And I think the same is true for societies. Do we want to write our laws for the 1% or the 0.1% or do we want to write them for the 99.9% for the vast majority of people? And if you look at the welfare system, we create all these checks and all this bureaucracy and we ask people uh, again and again if they're depressed enough if they're sick enough if they're really a hopeless case that will never get anything done in their lives and then maybe at the end of that process we give them a little bit of money but that produces dependency that produces people who are depressed and don't have the energy to do something and contribute in the real world so basic income is about turning that around and saying hey I think you've got great ideas. Hey, I trust you to to handle this venture capital and to come up with something interesting. And I can't wait to see what it's going to be. Interesting. Okay, wonderful. And with that, I'm going to uh, start taking questions yeah. from the audience. So I'm going to start with a question that has been, uh, that was asked really early on. It mm -hmm. comes from John Smith, who is an LSE student from Newcastle. And his question is, what do you think would be one, would be the one change of policy which would have the biggest impact. So given now your work in its totality, if you could change one thing about how we approach our public policies, what would that one change be? Hmm. Oh, that's a really difficult question. So let me just bang on about basic income here because, <laughs> because there are two effects that I think are really important that many people overlook. So it's much more than just improving the welfare system. It's actually a tool, I think, to help us transition to a post-capitalist society with very different kind of values. Now, what do I mean by that? What we've seen in the past couple of months is that governments around the globe have published these lists of so-called essential workers. And you look at these lists and you can't find the bankers and the hatch fund managers. You, you see teachers and nurses and care workers and 
garbage collectors who are actually doing much more important work, but not earning as much money as they should. Now, a basic income will be significant here because it will give much more bargaining power to the essential workers. They can go always go on strike. And we know what happens if they go on strike. We're in big trouble. Now, if the telemarketeers go on strike, we're like, yay, that's fantastic, you know, <laughs> go on strike much longer. So I think that a basic income will help us to move towards an economy where the wages of people will much better reflect the social value of the jobs that they do. Um, and the other important mechanism here is that imagine that you're young, say you're 17 or 18 years old, and your parents ask you, well, what do you want to study? And you say, well, I want to study anthropology at LSE. And then they, they look at you shocked, like, no, 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 don't do it. Get a real job, please. Uh, and, parents, I think. <laughs> and, and then uh, you go on and you study business administration or human resource, blah, blah, or something like that. You work in a job that you consider completely socially meaningless for 20 years. Then you have this midlife crisis. You have burnout. You go in ther into therapy. And then um, you decide, you know what? I'm going to study anthropology after all. What I think basic income will help people to do is to sort of skip the 20 years of waste and immediately do what they actually want to do. Uh, because they can say to their parents, don't worry about me. I can always fall back on my basic income. So the long-term changes of giving everyone, uh, the long-term implications of giving everyone actual freedom to give them venture capital uh, and, and the ability to make their own choices, which is now often a privilege for the rich, I think that will be extraordinary. I think it can really have extraordinary consequences for society. Um, and uh, that's why I would say basic income is one of the most promising and uh, awesome ideas out there right now. Excellent. Well, thanks for that answer. And I'm going to move to the next question, which comes from Franca Rochart. I apologize. I'm I mispronounced a lot of names along the way. Mm -hmm. um, but Franca is a LSE alum from social and cultural uh, psychology and is mm -hmm. a researcher at the Young Foundation in London and asks, how can you and we make sure that, our, that your idea of humans being kind and collaborative doesn't only resonate with, within a political left um, and educated silo? Uh, how mm. do we turn the idea into political action? Oh, that's a terrific question. So... What I've been trying to do in my work in the past couple of years, and I've been criticized quite a bit by the, for that by the people on the left, by the way, uh, is that I've tried to use a more inclusive language or I've tried to uh, find some kind of genuine third way. So not, not Tony Blair's third way, but um, to find sort of a combination between left-wing and right-wing thinking. Now, what do I mean by that? Again, basic income is a good example. The left likes it because you get this eradication of poverty. The right is often interested in it because it's about individual freedom and you need less government paternalism. So it's people actually making their own choices instead of the government saying, you need to do this or you need to do that. Um, I think there are many ways to sort of morally reframe the same idea uh, so that you can actually make a larger audience care about something. Um, so w another example is what you can do in the, in the age of climate change. Climate change tends to be something that mainly progressives worry about, and progressives tend to not really be patriotic, or at, at least they're not, they're not like really you know, walking around with a flag and saying, I love the US or I love the UK or something like that. Um, but there is a huge potential, actually, in feelings of patriotism and nationalism. So it's, it's I think, a mistake to just give that away to the other side of the political spectrum and not use it. Um, so I recently wrote an essay in Dutch where I make the argument that actually our fight against the water, you know, we are a country, the Netherlands, that doesn't really, shouldn't really exist. You know, we're like meters below sea level. I'm currently, I think I'm below sea level right now. Anyway, um, well, I make the argument that actually we've been fighting the water for th a thousand years and that we should be a guide country right now for the rest of the world. Uh, and be in the front in the battle against climate change. And it's something to be proud of because we've shown earlier, for example, after a terrible disaster in 1953 when the country was partially flooded and, uh, you know, uh, almost 2,000 people died. Um, then we built these great delta works, which are still, you know, one of the wonders of the modern world uh, that protect us against the sea. And now we need a, a new delta plan, a big ambitious infrastructural scheme, which is something like the Dutch Green New Deal. Um, so 
I think that that is something that um, we should try to do more. Is it's also my frustration as a European is that often we import this American language. So I hear European politicians talking about a New Deal or a Green Deal, and I'm like, come on, come on, come up with your own terms. You know that is that is American. We can find our own um, or connect to our own culture and heritage because climate change is such a big story that you probably need a thousand stories to do enough or 10,000, right? To convince enough people that they should do their best um, in contributing something. So uh, th- again, very long answer, sorry. And I don't, I'm not even sure if I get <laughs> answered the whole question, but hopefully this is helpful. We have another question from Arby Bagos, who works in international development and humanitarian aid. Mm-hmm. who says, agreed, people are altruistic and not merely self-centered, but altruism can quickly turn into white saviorism. For instance, foreign aid causing more harm than good. What are your thoughts about how we balance the desire to help when ensuring our actions don't cause further harms? Hmm. Hmm. That's a great point. So one of the interests, one of the reasons that I'm interested in cash just giving people money is that it's about respecting other people's autonomy. It, it basically says, I think that you're an expert in your life and I actually know very little about your life. I don't know what your dreams and your ambitions and your skills and expertise, expertise are. So the great thing about money is that people can use it to spend, uh, uh, they can spend it on things that they actually need instead of things that some kind of, white person in an SUV thinks they need. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I think, uh, and this is, uh, I think, an exciting development in, in uh, development aid is that more and more there's discussion around, uh, yeah, who are the real experts here? And uh, do we really uh, give people the to- tools to make their own choices? You know, there's this saying about don't give a man a fish, but teach him how to fish. And I've always hated that saying. I hated it. Because what if you're a vegetarian? What if, what if there's, there's no lake or a sea nearby? I mean, it's just a very stupid saying. Um, just give people money and maybe they'll do something completely different that you've never heard about and couldn't imagine that they would do it. Excellent. Um, so our next question comes from Ami Bar-On, who's a professor in philosophy in Binghamton University in the U.S., mm-hmm. who agrees that people cooperate and may even cooperate more than other, I mean, as in, they might be more cooperative mm-hmm. than selfish. But the research that this person is familiar with suggests that particularly we cooperate more with people who are like us. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, that demand, that when demand increases, cooperation becomes limited in scope. Please comment. Yeah. So it's not that we are not cooperative at all, but mm-hmm. there are times when we cooperate with people more than others. Um, when I feel like I have a lot, it's easy to cooperate. When I feel like you are like me, I'm more willing to cooperate with you. And so there yeah. are limits to cooperation. Yeah, so I you agree. You know, one of the most important limits to human cooperation is that we've sort of been shaped by evolution to interact on a face-to-face basis, which is also so difficult about this moment, you know, about this pandemic, is that we've been hardwired to really touch each other and to connect one with one another in a very physical, physical way. I thought that was one of the most interesting things to discover is that actually physical contact is not the, you don't only do it with sort of your, your, your partner or your spouse, but you do it with, with a lot of people. I discovered that, you know, many of my friendships are actually quite physical and, uh, and it's hard to, to, to keep the distance. Um, one of the really exciting things or fascinating things that I discovered during my research is that, Human beings have this unique ability to blush. We're one of the very few species in the whole animal kingdom that actually blush. We involuntarily give away our feelings to someone else to establish trust. Also, our eyes are unique in the sense that all the other primates, they have sort of dark around their eyes, so you can't really follow their gazes. But we have white sclera, you know, white around our irises, uh, which means that it's, we can look each other in the eye and we just, again, involuntarily give away what we're looking at. And again, it establishes trust. But in a large, uh, large-scale society, obviously face-to-face interaction becomes more difficult. Um, and here is why I think, uh, you know, again, the design of our institutions is so important and why diversity is so important. Because we know from psychology and in particularly from contact researchers is that, contact 
like especially real physical contact with people who are different from you um is the best medicine against hate and racism and and prejudices um and this is why that is why segregation is so worrying because it's it's really hard to hate someone who's standing in front of you uh but it's it becomes more easier when the distance increases the physical distance and also the psychological distance so i'm not saying that's easy but it is i think and it has been for a very long time the way forward is to try and build institutions that again and again and again bring people together um our next question uh i'm just going to ah, comes from jonathan Pizuti, uh, who is a LSE student from the US. Um, Jonathan asks, your discussion of hope for humanity seems to integrate traditionally, ideas traditionally conveyed in a spiritual or religious context. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that these moral ideals are possible without a metaphysical grounding? If so, how do you think you can ground a compelling case for hope in a secular world? Hmm. So if you come from, you know, say a religious background that instills certain kinds of ideals and certain beliefs about human nature, those are, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways quite um, available and easy to kind of, uh, you know, share with others. Do we need something like that to ground these ideas? And if not, what's the compelling case in a secular world? Oh, I love that question. So... I have a religious background myself. Uh, my father is a pastor, a Christian pastor. And uh, obviously, you know, as anyone uh, has to do, when I was around 18, 19 years old, I wondered, you know, do I actually believe in God? Do I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins? And uh, that was the moment I, I became an atheist. And that was the moment, uh, you know, the period in my life that I was obsessed with all these writers like, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, you know, like the new atheists who are trying to show again and again that, you know, religion is so silly and uh, it doesn't even make sense and the Bible contradicts itself and blah, 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 blah. Um, after a while, I became bored with that and became a, bit, a little bit fed up with it because I started to realize that actually it's much more interesting to ask the question, what's the effect of a certain dogma? What's the effect in in our lives, in our societies, of us believing this or that. Um, I mean, you can talk for a very long time about the literal truth of the Bible and this and does it contribute, but that, I mean, I don't really think you should read it in that way. It's much more interesting to think, well, what is sort of the social effect of us believing that, you know, a God exists or us believing that um, human beings are fundamentally uh, sinful or maybe they're actually good? And then that's the great thing about theology. You can reinterpret all the time, right? So there are versions of, and this is what the religion I know a little bit more about, uh, the versions of Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, that I think are quite cynical, um, that indeed portray human, humanity in a very dark light, especially sort of Calvinism. You know, again, the notion is that people are just born evil and that babies are already uh, pretty much evil. But then there are other ways of reading the Bible as well, especially the New Testament. And then the funny thing is that when I was writing the last chapter of my book, which is, I must admit, it's a little bit of the self-helpy part of the, of the book. I was, I was going to ask you, I didn't want to take up too much, but there are these things at the very end. Yeah, 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 yeah. We yeah. can do. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, but then uh, yeah, I was thinking about what are sort of the rules for life if you really believe that most people are pretty decent. And I found myself quoting the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, quite a few times. And, and also this notion of turning the other cheek, which is, I think, an incredibly powerful and rational principle that we can use in our criminal justice system that, you know, the Norwegians, as I, as I said earlier, have already been doing for quite a while with great success. So, um, yes, I, I think we should be sort of less obsessed with the literal truth or this or that dogma and just wonder what are the effects of people believing this or that. I think that's much more interesting. And if then religion is, can be a force for good, then great, right? Uh, but I think the question to some extent was saying that if you have no grounding at all in these kinds of um, religious mm -hmm communities and practices um, that they have had for a very long time. Um, you know, to think back to your earlier phase of reading Christopher Hitchens, right? Mm -hmm. um, how, how do we ground our sense of um, possibility and hopefulness um, mm. if, there, if we don't refer to something, you know, larger than ourselves? Yeah. Well, I remember 
sort of reading and understanding evolution, evolutionary theory for the first time. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, a student of a Christian school. So they were like, well, that's not really true. And that doesn't exist in a very silly theory. And now, then when I was 18 or 19 years old, I started to understand, well, there's actually a lot of really good evidence for this. <laughs> and um, I, I remember feeling quite depressed about it because it seemed to me such a se- world without meaning, such a senseless mechanism of, you know, that 99% of all species are already extinct and that we're in this meaningless I don't know, race or survival of the fittest. Uh, but re- writing this book has made me, has been quite a comf- comforting experience for me because I think the message of self-domestication theory, for example, uh, sort of where researchers ask the question, why have we conquered the globe? Why are we still here? And, and the Neanderthals, why are they gone? Well, the answer is because we're not alone. So maybe there's no God. Maybe there's no bigger reason for all of this but at least we're not alone and i think that's that's pretty terrific that we're not alone um with that i'll move to the next question which comes from emma delorio who's a lawyer in london um and asks this i think very um you know poignant question for our Mm -hmm. time how can we reconcile the need for cooperation with the increasing concentration of wealth looking at populist governments globally and particularly both the U.S. and Brexit situations um, with a no-deal Brexit hedging, those with political power appear to have a larger financial vested interest in undermining cooperation than previous political classes. How might we break this in the context of failing anti-corruption legislation? Yeah, I agree that's very worrying. Then at the same time, I see quite a lot of progress. You know, one of the strange things is that the moment when people start to become more angry about something, that is actually already the moment when things are improving. So to give one example, 10 years ago, how many people were writing and thinking about the phenomenon of tax paradises? Well, I can tell tell you very few people. I mean, very few journalists were writing about it. No one had heard of people like Thomas Piketty, the French economist. uh, And you know, even to do research into inequality, very few economists were doing it. Actually, Robert Solo, one of the Nobel Prize uh, winners in economics, in 2003, he said that it's just wrong to even study inequality because it has this, I don't know, corruptive effect on the discipline or something like that. That has totally changed. You know, the top uh, journals in economics, they've got a lot of papers about inequality. And we recognize now that it's a very important thing. And also with tax evasion, 10, 15 years ago, there was almost no discussion about big tax tax paradises like the Netherlands, where I'm from, you know, which is stealing a lot of money from other governments around the globe. Now there's much more talk about it, much more political pressure. So it seems at this moment that things are worse than 10 years ago, but they're actually much better because at least we're talking about it. And I think something, something similar applies to the Black Lives Matter protests. People may think that things are much worse right now, but there have been so many George Floyds before George Floyd, and they didn't get the huge protests that we see right now. So, I mean, this is this is not meant to be comforting because there's so much work still to be done. But I do see hope in this moment, and and uh, yeah, hope is all about the possibility of change, and it impels you to act. So yes, be angry because that propels us forward. Um, so here we have a, it's more of a comment, but I'm going to turn it into a question. It comes mm-hmm. from Sudhir Anand, who is um, a senior member of the Inequalities Institute of, and is currently in Oxford. Um, he writes to say that Adam Smith is often misunderstood by economists as being the high priest of selfishness. Um, but in the theory of moral sentiments, he actually wrote about sympathy. Mm-hmm. So there's a long quote, and I'll read a, a bit of it um, from Smith that says, however selfish man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortune of others and render his happiness and render their happiness yeah, yeah, yeah. necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it. Right, And so that's actually the opening. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, and that was actually his favorite work. He liked the theory of moral sentiments more than... And that was the one that he was than... most known for in his own lifetime. Yeah, right? yeah. So there's a way in which Adam Smith, um, who starts who starts his exploration of what comes to be homo economicus with this mm-hmm. idea that we are by nature sympathetic. We cannot help but care about other people. Yeah. Um, and that quickly 
gets shunted aside by the 19th century and turns into an account that says that what makes us tick, homo economicus by his, and it's often gendered as a he, right? Um, but is by, very nat- by his very nature is self-interested, which is then collapsed with selfishness. So both, there are other lessons yeah, yeah, yeah. Our yeah. History from our moral philosophy, um, from our religious texts that have other accounts of human nature. So, to return a little bit to the questions that we opened the session with, um, why have some of those lessons be, been shunted aside? Why mm-hmm. are we less familiar, for instance, with that Adam Smith mm-hmm. than the, the Gordon Gecko um, version of? Yeah, Good. that's a great point. You know, I have one discussion in the book about this where I talk about what I call the the error of the Enlightenment. Uh, that sounds like a wild generalization, and maybe it is, but bear with me. So what's interesting to me is that these philosophers, Adam Smith, and I think David Hume is the best example here. These were smart guys. Obviously, they understood that human beings are, you know, also have this extraordinary capacity for empathy, for cooperation, for solidarity, and you name it. But then there's one really interesting passage in David Hume's work where he says that we need to believe in something sort of on a political level, even though we know that it is false in fact, right? So he thinks that sort of politically it's justified to believe that most people are supposed to be knaves. I think that's the word they used back then, Um, uh, or jerks or whatever, Um, even though we just know rationally, of course, that people are not all jerks. Uh, And I think this is basically what started happening. And you can see it actually in, um, uh, if you look at the the founding of the US, John Adams, one of the founding fathers, wrote an essay with the title, All Men Would Be Tyrants If They Could. And this was really the, the first design principle of the US Constitution. The idea that you have to create this balance of power between all these selfish people, you know, you need a a Supreme Court, you need Congress, you need the Senate, so that there's not one big knave or jerk that can take all the power, but they, yeah, they keep each other in check. And I think that's generally true for those who are in power, because power corrupts, and power is an incredibly dangerous drug, and should be very wary of people who are in power. And uh, yeah, that's why shame and humbleness and the ability to blush is so important. And that's why it's so worrying that we can, we just can't imagine Boris Johnson ever blushing or or Donald Trump blushing, well, maybe he becomes orange, but not red. Um, so, um, yeah, that is that is sort of, I think, what's gone wrong is that um, we started designing so many of our institutions around this false idea that all people are selfish. And that is really something that you can already find in these Enlightenment texts, even though obviously people like Adam Smith and David Hume knew that it was false, in fact. Okay, so with that, I'm going to ask um, one final question, um, which uh, came to us quite early on in the um, in this session. It comes mm-hmm. from Kate French, who says, uh, since you believe humans are inherently good and cooperative, do you think that authority should focus their funds on preventing selfish behavior and law-breaking rather than putting funds into punishing and policing? So, as mm-hmm. you said, if our idea of selfishness partly comes from the fact that we have designed our institutions and our social structures and our political structures in a certain kind of way. How should we start reimagining those political structures? Mm-hmm. Well, the American journalist Ezra Klein recently wrote an interesting essay about nonviolence. And usually when we talk about nonviolence, we think of these courageous activists or the people like Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and Gandhi who had this extraordinary self-control and were willing to go to the front lines and willing to let themselves be beat up by the police and the army, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all fantastic, obviously, but it's also a very high and maybe even impossible moral standard for most people, right? That's not, I am saying that people are naturally friendly. I'm not saying that people are naturally Nelson Mandela's. Uh, he was a highly unnatural human being in many ways. It just had this extraordinary capacity for self-control and the ability to understand the, and, wish to understand his enemies and to speak their language, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he's a role model, but I'm not saying people have evolved to be that way. That's actually very, very hard. But then nonviolence, why is that not the philosophy of the state? Why do we not apply nonviolence on an institutional level? I think that's what we should do when we design our schools, our workplaces, democracies, prisons. Nonviolence should be the standard all the time. So 
Yeah, and that's also true for the police. Police, uh, sort of a good police officer should be a kind of social worker who's just good at connecting with other people and that people trust, uh, uh, you know, in the neighborhood. And that can be uh, so that they, they can become your allies if you actually try to solve real crime. So often, real problems are actually created by the people or the, the state that it's being, that's being violent instead of nonviolent. Um, so um, I think that would be a great way forward, is that the state adopts the principles of nonviolence. Well, thank you. And that is both a important and a hopeful place to end. And I think that the book and this conversation has given us so much to think about, especially as we watch the global pandemic and how, you know, individuals, communities, nations are handling it. I think your book gives us a lot of food for thought. So um, thank you again. First of all, my apologies to all the questions we couldn't get to. We had so many wonderful questions, but thank you everybody for being here today. Rutger, congratulations on the book um, and thank you again. So Thanks. Thank you, Nima. And thanks all for watching.